Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome author Brad Schreiber. He's going to talk about his new book, uh, and we're going to also talk about a bunch of other stuff. Um, Death of Paradise is one of his books, and it can be found at his website. Um, also, this is a recorded uh, uh, chat, and unfortunately, my throat is going out, so I apologize for my vocal technical difficulties. Here's Brad. Hi, Brad. Welcome to the show. Well, hi, Sherry. It's delightful to talk with you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a really hot day here in San Diego. How is it where you are? Well, um, it's the mid-70s here in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, One of the few upsides of being in a global pandemic is uh, there are less planes flying over my neighborhood uh, from Burbank Airport. So I'm trying to be as positive as possible about that. Um, And I also, because I've worked in the theater a lot, I love all the streaming theater that's available from London and New York and other places that is being put up on the net without charge so that, um, you know, people can hunker down and have some entertainment. Yeah, I've been watching, I was watching the Globe from London and the Globe from San Diego. It's so weird that Mm -hmm. you can watch both of them for free. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been to the Globe in San Diego but I have only watched online the Globe in London. The National Theatre, of course, is... I just saw a production of Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch and this amazing actor named Johnny Lee Miller, and they alternate. One is the, the, the doctor scientist, and the other is the monster. And Johnny Miller, as the Frankenstein monster, was both ferocious and lovable. I don't know how he made that that monster lovable, but you kind of wanted to throw your arms around him and go, don't hurt him, leave him alone. <laughs> he was a, He's a wonderful actor. He actually had a show on television called Elementary. Oh, okay. He's Didn't also, see that. I, I, uh, he's done some Jane Austen. He's, 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 a, he's, a, he's, a known, he's pretty well known. <laughs> Well, I certainly know Benedict's work, and uh, he's phenomenally gifted, too. Um, you know, like, like a lot of people in the arts, um, I'm very selective about what I check out, but I like to check out lots of stuff. I'll watch a dance performance. Um, I'm big on theater because I've worked in the theater and reviewed theater. Um, I like um, international films as much, maybe even more than Hollywood films. And, of course, uh, before I go to bed at night, I'm reading the book that I'm reading at at any given time. So I'm one of these people who really loves all forms of art and jumps around. I also like museums. I like to look at art. I can't draw a straight line, but I love love art. My mom was an artist. Really? Well, my dad was an artist. Tell me about your mom. Oh, my mom just was, uh, she wasn't well-known or anything like that. She just was a very good artist. She uh, she did painting, she did sculpture, she did tapestry, she did needlepoint. Nice. 
very yeah, talented. Yeah, my dad. My dad worked in a lot of media, too, Andrew Shriver. He went to um, the Art Students League in New York City. That's just down the street from Carnegie Hall. And um, he went as a young man in, like, uh, the late 30s, I believe, and and the World War II uh, era. And, uh, you know, they had... They had people that I really would have loved to have met, like George Gross, the German expressionist who did all those wild, cartoonish caricatures of, you know, um, generals and and industrialists. And, uh, you know, my dad uh, worked in all media. Um, like your mom, he wasn't uh, famous for, you know, doing his art, but he actually got famous for starting the special education program for high schools in the U.S. Um, so uh, I, my dad was, uh, had a lot of different talents, and my mom was a writer and an actress, so big surprise that I've got that in my genes. Yeah, my dad's side is he was a writer. He was very, he actually um, was, uh, did magazines and stuff like that. He was also not famous. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I have, but, and that's kind of funny because my mom was the one who introduced me to classic movies. My dad was the one who got me into, both of us, my brother and I, into books. Our parents hmm. both together were into theater. We were going to theater when we were tiny little tots. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they, my parents that's loved great. It, cha- it changes your mm-hmm. whole it changes your direction. Uh, most people don't think of it that way. They think about money affects your direction in life and education, and that's true. But how how young you are when you're exposed to art also changes who you are, you know, basically at the root. So I was lucky because my dad didn't like rock and roll at all, but he had a fantastic collection of classical music. And my mom loved Broadway shows and world music. They didn't even call, have a name for it. Miriam Makeba from Africa and, and you know, Harry Belafonte's, uh, you know, Calypso kind of music. So I was listening to all of that stuff when I was like five, six, seven years old and just loving it before I even heard any rock and roll and went crazy over that. My father and mother introduced us to jazz and swing when we were kids. And during the period of rock and roll, we both liked Glenn Miller and Artie Shaw. And <laughs> I love big bands, and, and I like, like modern. But we also liked some rock stars, but we were just like, we grew up with it. Like, there was this movie with um, Danny Kaye called um, A Song is Born, and mm-hmm. it had Louis... Strong and um, oh, what's his name? He's in the movie Act as Part, and I'm just blanking out on his name. Very yeah, a lot famous. of the, a lot of those movies they would they would you know like Gene Krupa be playing drums in some movie. I love it when they incorporated, you know, especially in the '40s, a lot of great jazz players into um, the plot of a movie. Funny enough. Yeah, one of the most Funny. incongruous he things. Like he didn't even know what jazz was because he was playing an old professor. Ah. It, and he was he was just hilarious and and he was trying to um, play a song and it was the 
Lionel Hampton was also in it, and he mm. said the name of his name. He says, well, he used to do it with his band, and mm. and they looked at each other, and they're like, I don't know who they're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's just, it was so funny. Benny Goodman. Benny that Goodman, oh, sure. Jeez, I couldn't believe I couldn't think of Benny Goodman. <laughs> anyway, yeah, really yeah. it. Never seen it. He he was just so good. Yeah, so he was being fun of himself and he was playing a character really well. Mm-hmm. I know, it kind of blows your mind when you see somebody in music and and then they show acting ability. Usually the rock stars who've been in movies, I've been unimpressed. I mean I may love their music, you know, you know, Jagger and David Bowie and and other people, but they're they're not trained actors, and they're not necessarily that good. I remember as a kid seeing Babe Ruth in an old movie where he played himself, and he was really interesting on camera. Yeah, he, you know, he was, had he had uh, acting chops. He was really it was good Luke on Gehrig camera. Cooper, and it was about uh, Luke Gehrig. Gary Cooper. Oh, Pride, Pride of the Yankees. Pride, Pride of, of the, the Yankees. Yankees. Yep. Yeah. I'm a movie buff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gary Cooper as Lou Gehrig, poor guy. Huh? He made everybody cry at Yankee Stadium when he was dying of that disease, and he said, I'm the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. Yep. What a great moment, yeah. And he, Babe was pretty damn good. He was surprisingly good. <laughs> yeah, so... um yeah, as I say, I I love all forms of of entertainment. I can't watch all the TV that that is now available and many people have noted that the production and writing in television is kind of in a golden age. And um I think that we're still in it luckily. Uh we're still seeing some pretty amazing series that are that are made, you know, for premium television. And um I'm a big fan of Billions. Do you know Billions on Showtime? No, no don't yeah, know that one. Yeah, Paul Paul Giamatti versus Damian Lewis, a hedge fund manager is corrupt versus a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, that's Giamatti, who is trying to, you know, basically bring down this guy who's ripping off people. And as the corrupt hedge fund manager becomes more humane – the U.S. attorney becomes more corrupt. It's really quite well written, and uh, they're now in their fourth season. I like the first three seasons of that very much. I never actually, I never even heard of it. Yeah, well, there's just so much. How do you you keep up, right? But there's so many shows, it's really hard to, like, um, a friend of mine, um, I I write... um, Articles for um, a magazine, and she started doing a binge-worthy segment on it. As she had a list, and one of the shows I like was on the list, so I told some of the people, and uh, with that from that show, and all of a sudden, it's, a, it's that group of people who are fans who like the show, and all of a sudden what they're telling all these different shows, and I've never heard of any of them. <laughs> Well, what's the one that that you binge on? I didn't hear. Uh, it's called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Oh, okay. I see. I don't know that one. 
So there you go. There's so much to watch. And, of course, if you watch too much TV, you don't get your writing done or you don't get exactly. to read the, the books that uh, you have stacked up on the shelf gathering dust. That kind of reminds me of the, um, the uh, movie The Time Machine when he goes to the future and there's, there's oh. a bookshelf and all yes. of the books are dust when he puts he gets he pulls it out and just crumbles in his hand and he gets mad he puts yeah. his hand just his hand right without seeing it just puts his hand right through all the books. I love that movie. Rod Taylor, who I, uh, I thought it. was. I thought it was British, but he's actually Australian. He was Australian and then came to London and worked. Another moment in that movie that I really like, Sherry, is the talking rings, uh-huh. where he's with Yvette Nemu, and, and they spin the rings, and Paul Frees, the famous voiceover guy, um, tells of the past history. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, for a movie made in, what, in the early 60s, I thought that was a fantastic science fiction idea. I love science yeah. fiction. Not surprisingly, I've, I've, I've adapted, you know, um, Philip K. Dick's work and Ray Bradbury's work for National Public Radio. And um, while I don't read a ton of science fiction, I'm always looking for another mind-bending science fiction writer who goes beyond the genre. I just loved uh, Rod Taylor in that movie. He was so good. And Yvette Minio as the innocent mm-hmm. girl. It was just Lena. Uh, yeah, she was beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. It, it, it's really funny because she's one of the she was one of the smartest women in Hollywood. She was a director and a writer, but she could play young and innocent better than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that she'd done directing as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's um. I'm sorry you broke up. What was that? I said she directed theater, too. And theater as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, science fiction movies, you know, it's funny. I, I was talking to a friend of mine in Portland. Um, she used to live here in L.A. and worked in the theater. And somehow we got onto the subject of science fiction like we are now. And she brought up. Oh, I know, because everybody on Facebook is doing, here are my top ten books and my top ten movies. And she said one of her top ten movies was Alien, which which was a terrifying movie, but technically amazing. And then it's one of those early movies that had a really strong female lead in, an action, in a quote-unquote action movie. And if you think about it, Sigourney Weaver in, in Alien was one of the first major stars to play an action protagonist and mm-hmm. kick some serious booty in the process. She was yep. great. People for, didn't know her dad was famous. They, they, it was Instead of she was uh, her famous dad's daughter, her dad became his, his famous daughter's dad. <laughs> I love that reversal. <laughs> right, he was at NBC, right? He was an exec at NBC. He was the exec. He was the man who made the decisions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, Sigourney's involved in the theater, or her husband Jim Simpson. They're involved in a wonderful off-off-Broadway company called the Flea Theater, F-L-E-A. And I've been in New York and seen some of their productions, and they are really powerful. So, you know, she's yet another 
movie star, quote unquote, who is into theater and, and other things. I actually think that is so important that uh, actors have their, learned their craft in the theater. If they don't, they don't, then they go and they do it later, like Elizabeth Taylor did toward the end of her life. I thought that mm-hmm. was brilliant of her to start mm-hmm. working in theater because she had never done it before. It was a great challenge. And apparently yeah. Richard Burton pulled her to do it, <laughs> kicking and screaming. Mm. <laughs> she yeah. didn't want to do it. <laughs> well, I actually saw the Little Foxes at the Dorothy Chandler here in Los Angeles, and I was in the back of the last balcony, and, and everybody on stage looked about that big. But she was pretty good. She was pretty good on stage. Interestingly, you know, Burton, of course, was so great as a thespian, and then he went into the movies. And, um, you know, I got a residency years ago from Edward Albee, the playwright, and I remember talking with him once about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, the movie with Burton and Taylor. And he said something really surprising to me. He said, they were both good, but they weren't my first choices. And I said, well... (laughs) Who would you have had if not Burton and Taylor? And he said, originally I told the company that I wanted Betty Davis and James Mason. And instead they went for the Liz and Dick show. And then Albee went on to say that he thought that Burton was magnificent. And he kind of wished that Burton had stayed in the theater and not done all of those movies, which of course made him a lot more money. But... um, Olivier, he did theater so he could. I mean, he did movies so he could do theater. Yeah, well, that's that's true, that's and hard, uh, hard to uh, you know get money going to do a play, and a lot of actors do that. They will take a part in a like a blockbuster that may be considered beneath them, but it will give them money to do that play in England or in the West End or here in Broadway or in L.A. or wherever. Which he mm-hmm. wouldn't have money for. Um, Olivier did that too. I mean, you know, some of the movies he did weren't that good, but he was wonderful in whatever he did. But it was just the, like um, the one he played Zeus in. They, they did I didn't hear you. Of, the one he played what? The one he played Zeus. Uh, Olivier played Zeus in. Oh. They made I a don't remake of recently. I know that Olivier was in Marathon Man playing a Nazi doctor who was undercover living a, as a dentist in New York, right, with Dustin Hoffman. That, that, yeah, that, he did do that movie, but that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about Zeus, the god. <laughs> yeah, I never saw that one, Sherry. Um, I don't even know what it's called. Oh, anyway, it was Zeus. not the best. In fact, it just did a remake of it. Um, but he hmm. did it. Oh, he could uh, produce uh, uh, King Lear. That's oh, that's great. Yeah, you're right. You know, one thing feeds the other. Um, some of the uh, things that I'm proudest of are the things that I labored over for a long time. And then sometimes the thing that you just kind of knock off and throw out there makes you a bunch of money. And you go, wow, I spent all this time working on this project, this book, and Hardly, you know, hardly made any money, but I really am proud of it. And then I, you know, came up with this idea for a TV show, 
and it kept me alive for a few years. So it's kind of funny that way. Yeah, exactly. No, Marriage of Men was actually one of the movies that I thought were was brilliant. Um, but but this movie was not brilliant. It just was one of those blockbusters who make that made a movie. That's it. Clash of the Titans. Oh my God, he was in that. <laughs> yeah, he played Zeus. They they paid him a lot of money to play Zeus. Oh yeah, that was that was a paycheck role. I'm sure you're right about that. It was sort of like, although I thought it was a really good movie, uh, it's sort of like Marlon Brando playing a, a Superman's dad. Right. Um, that that was purely for the cash for Marlon Brando. But actually, I thought it was a really good movie. Christopher Reeves was Reeves was wonderful in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny when you talk about movies and your favorite roles. Sometimes it's really obscure stuff, not the not the movie that zillions of people went to. Um, I don't know how many people saw, it was in the 50s, there was a film adaptation of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. And everybody was yeah. made fun of Marlon Brando and the mannered way and, you know, the method and all of that. But, oh, my God, he, he just, the hair on the back of your neck goes up when he delivers the funeral speech in the movie version of Julius Caesar. It's phenomenal. It's, Everybody and, and in the movie was actually really good. That yeah. was a really good rendition of it. I mean, it had John Gilgood. You know? there, there you go. There you go. And th- there's, It's funny, too, you know, because people... Inevitably, if you have a career and you do a bunch of movies, there are going to be a couple of movies that people are going to make fun of and say, ah, you just did that for money. Um, And then they'll say, these are the iconic roles. But if you really love somebody and you've seen their whole canon of work, you you tend to enjoy them in no matter what they're in. Um, I know I'm that way with filmmakers. Like Stanley Kubrick is one of my favorite filmmakers. And even when he doesn't score a 10 for me his his motion picture is more interesting than almost everybody else's at least to my mind I yeah he was brilliant he was a brilliant director um I liked a lot I like David Lean I like Martin Scorsese even though I'm not really into violence I like his non-violent movies which are very yeah. few um <laughs> did you ever did you ever see uh, Scorsese's uh, little movie called After Hours? No. Oh, it's a one. really Griffin Dunn is in it. And it's a really bizarre black comedy, and it's totally unlike Scorsese, and it's quite wonderful. After Hours, I really recommend it. A guy who lives in uptown New York lusts after this woman, and he, he has this horrifying but funny night where everything goes wrong. Um downtown, you know, and um, wonderfully made. I've never heard of that one, and I'm pretty much into movies. I love yeah. I love classics especially, so that's interesting. Thank you for that new one. To add to yeah, that's list. my problem. I, I like all these weirdo movies. I'm, I'm doing a Facebook. Somebody asked me to do your top ten movies, and I'm doing, you know, it's hard. How do you pick ten movies? So I went... And categorically, I said, I'm going to pick really obscure movies that really, I would walk out of the theater shaking in some way, 
like from excitement or fear or just the new way it was made. And um, today's movie that I pasted on Facebook was a Tim Robbins movie by Adrian Lyne called Jacob's Ladder. Oh, that's a really one, good movie. You know that that's one? A, yes, that's a really good movie. And you don't know what's real and what's in his head, and it's it's got really powerful iconography, and it's surreal, and I just, I don't like horror, because I'm a wimp, I guess, and I don't like too much blood on screen, but a horror movie that's psychological in nature and makes you think, I'm a sucker for those, as long as there's not too much blood. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are into horror, and they don't understand. I like a good thriller, like Hitchcock or um, or the Pet, uh, Pet, I can't talk today, Pelican Brief, stuff like that, or a good murder yeah. mystery. But I can't yeah. stand slasher movies. I just, I can't. Yeah. I just can't watch it. <laughs> yeah, you you and I oh, are in agreement on that. I I also think that, you know, like sometimes something classic like an Agatha Christie film adaptation is is really fun. I remember loving the original, not the remake, the original Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. And and getting that kind of all-star cast of these fantastic actors to all sign on to play little roles. I love that when when they can do that. Of course, it's harder to do now to assemble a large cast of famous actors. But in the old days when they did that, it was just... That, that was just that special about that one. It was just beautifully done. It was like, it was so magical. Yeah. Yeah, it works it's, in comedy, too. Uh, you know, um, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Think about... Oh, that's the classic. Insane, I love that movie. <laughs> the insane collection of comedy stars in that movie, which you could never reproduce again. Um, uh, I... Actually watched an old Inside the Actors Studio with Peter uh, Falk, and they asked him about that movie, and he oh, yeah? said, he, he said, uh, you, he, he, one of the actors during the question and answer was doing uh, impressions of some of the comedians, and he said after he did that, he said, could you not stop laughing? And he goes, it was amazing. He goes. He goes, there, there was not one comedic actor or a comedian who was not in that movie. He said, I have mm. never been so odd. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I remember seeing it at the Cinerama Dome um, yep. here in Los Angeles, when, and that was the first movie that showed when they opened the Hollywood Cinerama Dome. They had it in 70 millimeter, and Cinerama, of course, was an aspect ratio on uh, that went on a curved screen, so audiences were blown away. It had that wraparound effect, um, and it was a mad, mad world. Uh, that was the first movie there. I just loved that movie. And you know, sometimes it's funny. It's when you see it in a movie house, you sometimes miss stuff that you can catch on your television. I thought mm-hmm. um, I'm a bit younger than you. I thought first time in the drive-in when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> where parents took us, <laughs> and, and my, um, I remember watching it, and one of my favorite actors is Spencer Tracy, and mm-hmm. I was like in awe of everybody in the movie, but I was in awe of Spencer Tracy, and I couldn't stop watching it. I think I was 
Uh Oh, I guess about seven or eight. And Uh so later on, when it came on TV, I said, I was like, oh, my God, Jerry Lewis is in this movie. I mean, people I didn't notice the first time I saw in the theater. (laughs) It's phenomenal. (laughs) Bill Silvers. I mean, so many people. (laughs) Jack Benny. Did you remember that? it just goes on and on the cast list is it's it's on Ethel Ethel Merman. Oh my god, she was hilarious. I know. Oh. Yeah, and it and a lot of it was shot around where I lived as a boy, Santa Monica. Um I moved from New York when I was 9 with my family to Santa Monica and then lived in Northern California too. And uh, it was a thrill to see this big screen movie in Hollywood and then it's images of your own town. And, you know, as a kid, I'd we'd be in like the Hollywood ranch market buying some produce and there would be Yule Brenner wearing a T-shirt and some blue jeans holding a grapefruit and studying it, you know. And I'd just kind of go into a, a trance. Oh, my God, that, that's a famous person. Buying a grapefruit. This is bizarre. You know? I remember when I was was little, I had a stair waiting in line with us to go see a movie. (laughs) How fun. (laughs) Poor man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Don't ask him to dance while you're waiting in line. Leave him alone. In the movie theater line? No, who would do that? Well, you know, that's the thing. Celebrity makes people do funny things, you know, and it also makes fans of celebrities do funny things. That's true. I saw George Harrison of the Beatles at Disneyland once, and I wasn't going to bother him, but, you know, the Beatles are my favorite rock group of all time, right? And then I Mm -hmm. hear a guy next to me go, hey, it's him. And his friend goes, no, it couldn't be. Oh, yeah, it's him, man. Let's go up and talk to him. And all of a sudden, I felt protective of George Harrison. And I turned to these two guys, and I said, you're not from Southern California, are you? And they said, no, <laughs> no, we're from wherever they were from. I said, well, you know, in L.A., celebrities have a right to privacy when they go out somewhere in public. So they went, oh, we didn't understand that. Oh, okay. So the end of the story, Sherry, the end of the story with George Harrison is, they go away, and George Harrison is, like, um, waiting outside of the gift shop on Main Street in Disneyland. And these guys go away without bothering him. And then his wife comes out of the gift shop, and I am not lying to you. George Harrison, before he leaves, looks over at me, catches my eye, and he gives me a nod, like, I saw you stop those guys from coming up to me, and I appreciate it. And that was my little moment. That was my little moment yeah. with a beetle. That's pretty damn good. <laughs> Although I would have loved to have talked to him. Oh, Love sure. the Beatles. Anyway. Well, you know, uh, celebrities are more interested in you than they want to talk about themselves. My dad was in the service, and he was on a train going from Miami back to New York. He's from Brooklyn. And uh-huh. on the train with him was David Niven. Ah. And David Niven was, like, sitting across from him, and Dad, very, he was very shy, but he was also very polite. He did not stare. 
he picked up the paper and he was like looking at it. But David was serviceman, you know, even though he wasn't in the service during the same time period. He was my he was World War Two and my dad was Korean War. Um, he walked over to him, sat next to him and said started asking him questions, where was, where was he in service, has it been overseas? He was asking him questions. So, mm. you know, forget, they're human beings. You know, they're just as curious about people as we are about them. <laughs> exactly, especially actors. They learn by observing and talking to people. And, um, you know, and, they, and writers. You know, we are writers. We love good stories. Mm-hmm. Um I've driven across the United States twice when I was a younger man, and I loved stopping in some town and being in a diner and talking to somebody who'd spent their whole life in a small town and find out what their perspective is. And, and you know, sometimes you, you meet somebody and you know you're never going to see them again, and you kind of open up to them and tell them things. And as a writer, I love that experience of people going, I'm never going to see you again. Let me tell you something that's going to blow your mind. It's really <laughs> fun. Great. Um, yeah, I think... We're at the point where we've got to switch over to your book. Um, All right. Could you tell us a little bit about what your book's about and, you know, who'd mm-hmm. be interested and... Yeah, sure. It's like my, I don't know, 11th or 12th book. It's called Music is Power, and Rutgers University Press just put it out recently. It's a history of socially conscious music in the last 100 years. Um, Most of it's from the U.K. and the United States, but it's every kind of music. It's got everything from punk to um, Broadway it's got everything from psychedelic to country music. And I talk about either two or three acts in each chapter. And I not only talk about the songs they wrote that sort of impacted history, I also talk about what they went through as artists. You know, not, not all these artists had a wonderful experience being famous. Like there was a song called The Eve of Destruction. Do you, do you know about that song? It was no. written by a guy named Phil Sloan in, in 1965, and it went to number one, but it, he was criticized because half the country was you know, for the Vietnam War and half was against it. And poor Phil Sloan, who wrote this number one hit that Barry Maguire sang in 1965, had all these people attacking him. So some of the personal stories are, are kind of interesting as well as the impact the stories had on the country and you know um like Peter Gabriel you know you know Peter Gabriel from Genesis he wrote a song called Biko which was about Stephen Biko who fought apartheid in South Africa and was murdered by the police i mean how timely is this discussion yeah. and and Gabriel wrote this beautiful song about Stephen Biko and it so inspired people that students around the United States in the early 80s um, started asking the universities to divest of their investments in South Africa. And, and over about eight years, U.S. colleges and universities pulled over $1 billion of investment in South Africa because they were racist. And really, Peter Gabriel's song, Biko, was the forerunner of that movement. 
So when people say, ah, a song can't change anything, you tell them to read Music is Power, that they're dead wrong. Every, every Anything can change something. Music, a book, even a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. It, 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 if it, it touches the soul, then it's going to change it. it. Yeah. Some things change one person, some things create a movement. But it's mm-hmm. don't you don't you feel as a writer, Sherry, that when you when somebody compliments you, it's not just about your ego. It's about you understand who I am as a person and what I'm writing about and why it's important to me. I mean, that's not just strokes. It's not just being complimented. It's feeling that someone understands you at your core when they compliment your art. It doesn't and that's have to, really important. It, it it depends on the compliment. But yes, yeah. yes, I agree. Uh, yeah. Because sometimes just really like your book. Yeah. Well, um, we'll take we'll take that, but we we, you know, you, you I I think we always like that, people are perceptive. I I'm more interested when somebody hey I really like this book can you explain this part to me and that means you read it. Sure. <laughs> and then you get dialogue and it's really cool. That's the kind of yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's why I, I love um, podcasts l- like what you're doing because uh, I've been on, I don't know, 14 or 15 of them for Music is Power. And some people like a certain kind of music or are interested in a certain period of history. And then somebody else is totally into something else. And that's why I chose every single kind of music. I didn't want to just say, oh, yeah, the 60s and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, and that's all there is. I wanted to find stuff from 1910 right up to hip-hop music so that anybody, no matter what he or she liked in terms of music, could recognize that there are people in every genre who said, we have to make the world a little better, and I'm going to try and do it with this particular song. And I think we need that message now more than ever. Did you know that I I just heard this? I didn't know it. It just really shocked me. Yeah. Uh, you've heard of um, God Bless America, right? Yeah. Person. Yeah. You know you you know that that was uh, Kate Smith's big song and. And it was it, it actually some people think it should be our national anthem because it's easier to mm-hmm. say. Yeah. When it first yeah. came out, Kate Smith's agent and got all kinds of horrible letters saying, "How can you have a, a, a thing about God Bless America written by this person who isn't American? He's Jewish." Mm. It was the most anti-Semitic. Bunch of crap. That, and and like, what do you mean he isn't American? He was born in America. Of course he was American. Um, you know, that's what my reaction was. But as the documentary went on, it was basically saying these people were bigoted because he was Jewish and felt that he didn't have a right to write mm. a song in America. Yeah. But that's the thing. We're the great experiment. We have to keep reminding ourselves. You know, I'll tell you something else. When I was in junior high school, well, see how old I am. They call it middle school now. When I was in middle school, I saw a button. Everybody was into wearing buttons in those days. And it was all red with black lettering, and it was the outline of an Indian with a beautiful headdress. 
And all it said on the button was, welcome all white immigrants. <laughs> Just to remind you that this land belonged to the Indians before anybody else, and the rest of us are immigrants. So sometimes we have to kind of remember our history and put things in perspective. It's welcome basically everybody but Indians because they were not the the first people were not they were there, they were here. We uh, the Spaniards and the English and the Dutch and all these other people they're the immigrants, not. Yeah, there you go. Crazy. <laughs> I know. The more you know about history, the more the more fatalistic you are about human beings and how long it takes to evolve. But, you know, concentrating on the positive things even in the middle of a pandemic is good for you. Um, oh, you yeah. know, we could learn we could learn a lot of stuff from this period and and how we behave after things kind of calm down a bit. Um, it'll be a shame if we go through this and nothing changes. I mean, That's I don't know. That's actually my hope. Maybe it's like the universe's way of saying, slow down, look around you. Thank Stop you. moving so fast that you don't see what's really going on in the world. I, and Thank maybe that's what's I totally agree with you. There's something very powerful about seeing a picture in a big city of a street that's deserted and seeing some deer or some alligator, you know, crawling across the street. Remember, it was their world before it was our world. And we're all in this together. Without worrying about the cars. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's good. It just gives you a nice little shock and you... You re you reconfigure the way you think about life because life is very busy and there's lots of distractions, and it's a cliche, but sometimes it's good to sort of pull back and you know be contemplative. That's why I love talking to writers like you because we spend time thinking about the things that other people don't take the time to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of what we're supposed to do for a living. And it's part of our process. And, you know, I hope that I hope that we'll recognize that we need to help each other, not just in the U.S., but on the face of the earth. That oh, yeah. We, we should have countries saying, you know what, we need to share our scientific investigations. Maybe we'll get a virus faster, a virus cure, you know. Um, maybe we'll be inoculating people six months or a year sooner if we all – get together and trade scientific information for a vaccine. Wouldn't that be a good thing? The big lesson from this is that we're one planet. Yeah. Everything, and I don't just mean humans, all of the plants, the animals, us, everything is one. This is it. We don't have anywhere to go. We don't have the technology. (laughs) Yeah. Take care of us. There are no colonies on the moon. We've got to, we have to work it out here, Sherry. Yeah, there's no place to go. We have nowhere to yeah. escape. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, in a book. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, we can escape to a book. Uh, we're coming to the end. Um, do you have a website, and what is your social media? Oh, all right, thanks. Well, bradschreiber.com. I make it easy for people. If they don't know how to spell Schreiber, I say brash. Cyber, 
S-C-Y-B-E-R.com. And I'm on, you know, at Brad Schreiber on Twitter, and I'm on Facebook where I take cartoons and recaption them and Goodreads. I'm, I'm all over the place. But um, my website uh, does have a lot of video and audio about my previous books, so that might be a fun place to start. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I really did. It was great to hear what you love in in the arts. I never get tired of learning about books and TV and film and theater and hearing about stuff I want to go out and see now. Cool. Um, Thank you, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank you. (laughs) 